Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about faith, family, freedom, the state of Illinois, our nation, and conservative action. Here's David Smith and Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. During this edition, Dr. Robert Gagnon explains how to make the Christian case against homosexual practice. It's territory that many evangelicals fear to tread, but Dr. Gagnon argues they absolutely should. Dr. Gagnon is professor of New Testament theology at Houston Baptist University. His book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, powerfully challenges attempts to identify love with affirmation of homosexual practice. Here is his address. During the recent Illinois Family Institute Worldview Conference, held at the Village Church of Barrington. I'd like to start with a little reminder from a church father, St. Augustine. St. Augustine was talking about the question of how we to love, and uh, the question about love and discipline, for example. And he said, let me give you a picture of two different situations. On the one hand, we have a man who's hugging a child. And then, on the other hand, we have a picture of a man who is hitting a child. Which one loves? Of course, the man hugging the child, right? Let me give you some more information, Augustine says. The man hugging the child is a pederast. Sexual love is involved. And the man who thought was hitting a child is in restraint disciplining his child in love. Now let me ask you again, which one loves? So you see how it's important to wed truth with love in order to love appropriately. He said, love not in the person his error, but the person, the error the person made the person God made. And getting that distinction down is absolutely critical. When I talk about the issue of scripture and homosexual practice, I always begin with Jesus. Hmm, why bother with that, right? Get a Hallmark card, what did Jesus say about homosexual practice? Open it up, nothing. Well, guess what, he actually said quite a lot. Because what is the flip side of homosexual practice? or let's say the prohibition of homosexual practice. It is a male-female prerequisite for all sexual relations. And homosexual practice is a direct assault on that prerequisite. So that's what Jesus did. He clearly established that prerequisite. How do we know that? There's a famous Jesus sex text in Mark 10 and in Matthew 19, revolving around the question of divorce and remarriage. And in that context, Jesus cites two biblical verses. Anyone know what they are? Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Genesis, and one-third of Genesis 1.27, mind you. Male and female, he made them. And Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man may become, leave his father and mother, and may become joined to his wife or woman, and the two become One flesh, Hmm, you've read that text before, very good. And by the way, that verb for joining in Hebrew and also the same Greek verb in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, also means is used for gluing things together. Although I don't want you to learn here today that you're stuck with your spouse. This is where prepositions are important, stuck to, not stuck with, okay? But you've become two, the two individual, Uh, initially individual human beings become an integrated sexual whole and unite. Now, what possible relevance does that have to the divorce-remarriage question? 
Well, Jesus is arguing that even if you gave a certificate of divorce to your spouse, if you remarry, or your spouse remarries, then you each commit adultery. Now that only works on the premise that you're only allowed one person lifetime. And when you pick up another while your original spouse is still alive, that's adultery. Because Jesus takes very seriously the limitation of two persons to a sexual union. Even though in his cultural context, men had the right of unilateral divorce, for virtually any cause, according to the House of Hillel. One example given by a rabbi within that school of thought, Rabbi Akiva says, if she burns the toast, you can get rid of her, okay? And when Jesus made his remark, remember what the disciples commented in Matthew 19, understanding the seriousness of what Jesus was saying, that marriage is a lifelong, indissoluble union between one man and one woman, and this comes from the Creator. It is not something that human beings can tinker with at will. It's the very foundation of human sexual ethics. So where does he get this tunis? Hmm, very difficult. Two, well, he talks about male and female, man and woman. I don't know, I give up. Why does he restrict the number of people in a sexual union to two? because, <laughs> hopefully you all got it, God has intentionally, intentionally designed human beings to be two and only two sexes. And thereafter, once those two unite into a single flesh, a third party is neither necessary nor desirable because you've already brought together the two halves of the sexual spectrum, what else are you waiting for? Right, that's the logic. It's an interesting statement about Christology, by the way, because it implies that Jesus believed that he had the authority to unilaterally amend the Constitution of Israel given to Moses at Mount Sinai by Yahweh. Now, it's an extraordinary, you try today even to amend even just the Constitution of the United States, and we have wonderful padded rooms for you to inhabit. But Jesus amended something given by God at Sinai and said that God had allowed a loophole for a while to men, never to women. Women never had the right of unilateral divorce, as we noted before. They never had the right of polyandry, multiple husbands. The only kind of polygamy known in Israel was polygyny, multiple wives. Jesus closed a remaining loophole that existed for men and not for women in order to make scripture more internally consistent and coherent. Now, he could have gone in the other direction, he could have created the same loophole that existed for men for women, but he didn't. Although he promoted equality between the two, he moved in the direction of sexual purity and sexual demand, not sexual license to do what you want. There's an interesting hermeneutical principle involved there. By hermeneutics, we mean interpreting the biblical text for our current cultural context. Because a lot of times when I've debated in the past with scholars on the other side, now unfortunately it's been years since anybody's been willing to debate me, I wait, I throw out the invitations, nobody bites. But if you can get that going with some other scholar and me, more power to you. Maybe offer us each, I don't know, 
$10,000. I'm just suggesting. I'll cut my rate just to have it happen. Okay? Jesus is talking about a foundational two-ness to the number of partners allowed in the sexual union based on God's deliberate creation of two primary sexual pairs. That's it. That's your clue, Jesus said. That's the basis on which you can amend the Constitution of Israel. When I debate the other scholars, they'll sometimes say, well, Dr. Gagnon doesn't realize that not everything in the Old Testament carries over anymore. Am I an idiot? I mean, no, of course I realize that. But did you look at the direction in which Jesus is going? The direction that Jesus is heading, he's actually is amending the Constitution of Israel. He is changing it. But to be more consistent with the principle of a male-female requirement for sexual unions. And you're going in the opposite direction. Well, then I don't hear that argument again afterwards for all the obvious reasons. Because yes, there is change, but it's in the change that's the exact opposite direction that you're advocating. So therefore, you can't really be upholding the Lordship of Jesus Christ and doing such a thing. Now again, he cites Genesis 127, just one third, male and female, he made them. There's no reason to cite that section of text unless he's emphasizing something about the binary character of human sexuality, having implications for the number of sexual partners allowed in a sexual union. Now we have another scholar like uh, James Brownson at Western Seminary in Michigan. And uh, he's looked at this text and he says, you know what, I do think that Jesus is also implicitly prohibiting polygamy, right? Because if it's still adultery, if you marry another person after giving a certificate of divorce, then how much more would it be adultery if you didn't give your initial spouse the certificate of divorce, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. And we actually do have a group in early Judaism that argued against polygamy and for revoking that allowance about a century before Jesus called the Essenes, associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls. They cited the exact same one-third of Genesis 1:27, male and female, he made them. Now you might think that that phrase, male and female, appears all over the Hebrew Bible. Actually, it's just found in a few places in the opening chapters of Genesis. The last set of times in which it appears, it appears in the Noah's Ark narratives, where the animals went into the ark two by two, male and female, they were trying to find a text that would connect that phrase, male and female, with the number two. And that's what they came up with the Noah's Ark narratives. So they made that connection before Jesus, but they extended it only to polygamy, not to remarriage after divorce. Jesus is utterly unique in extending that principle to serial polygamy and not just concurrent polygamy, which makes him the most rigorous sexual ethicist that we know of in the entire ancient world, bar none, which must mean that sexual purity is important to Jesus and must mean that the male-female foundation for sexual relations is exactly that. The Essenes called it the foundation of creation, and Jesus is certainly treating it as the foundation for human sexual ethics, so significant that the principle of monogamy, the limitation of two persons to a sexual union, is predicated on that foundation. But it's not itself the foundation. The foundation is the intentional creation by God of binary sexuality. 
and the prerequisite for all sexual unions that there be a male and a female. That's the foundation on which a monogamy standard is predicated. Which is more important, a principle secondarily extrapolated from the foundation or the foundation? It's obviously the, that's why it's called a foundation. Who knew? Okay, the foundation is more important. That's why if a person argues that if we permit homosexual unions in the church, we're creating a slippery slope for polyamory, I'm sympathetic to that argument, except it's the wrong direction. The worst thing from the biblical standpoint, from Jesus' standpoint, is the assault on the foundation, the male-female prerequisite for sexual unions. That's the worst thing, not the polyamory. So however bad you think polyamory is, and even in the church today, even in mainline churches, I haven't seen too much movement in that direction. Some, but not, it's not the majority yet. It will be eventually, but not now. Well, the permission granted for same-sex erotic unions is even a greater violation. Think about it from this standpoint, too, in terms of loopholes. The earlier loopholes are closed off in Scripture with regard to a particular sexual offense, the more likely it is that that sexual offense is more severe, right? So when is the loophole for polygamy closed off? It's not closed off in the Old Testament. It's allowed for men. Polyandry. It is closed off by Christians in Jesus' statement, implicitly in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. And for the rest of Judaism, not till a couple of centuries later in the rabbinic period. Incest. There are certain loopholes in incest. The patriarchs violate some later Levitical laws against incest. In terms of marrying an affine relative for Abraham and Sarah, and for Jacob being married to two sisters concurrently. Those two things will be prohibited in Levitical incest law in the Mosaic period and beyond. That loophole gets closed off earlier than the loophole about number of partners allowable in a sexual union. Which do you think is worse? Polyamory or incest? Incest. And everybody knows it. You don't even, I didn't even have to cite that text probably for you to know it. You just intuitively know it, that this is one of the irreducible minimums of sexual ethics. When does the loophole for homosexual practice get closed off? Never, because there never was one. There never was a loophole. Because the very first thing that's differentiated in creation is the differentiation into sexes, male and female. Now I ask you again, which is the more severe offense? There is, in the view of Scripture, in the view of Jesus and Scripture generally, no form of consensual sexual behavior among human beings that is more extreme than same-sex intercourse. Now, since we've leapfrogged over incest and polyamory to get to same permission for same-sex intercourse, eventually we're going to have to circle back and be more internally consistent with our arguments. Because if there's no particular significance to a male-female binary in God's creation purposes, then why are you limiting the number of partners in a sexual union to two? If it's adult, consensual, committed, loving, what's your argument? There isn't really an effective logical or creation-based argument to make against it once you've already asserted there's no significance to a sexual binary in sexual relations. So that indicates that what we're talking about here, when you reject what Jesus says on this matter, you're rejecting a matter of grave significance. And if you attempt to confess him as Lord, after rejecting what he regards as foundational for all human sexual ethics, 
pretty hard to make the case that you really are treating him as Lord. I mean, I debated once with a New Testament scholar at the time was teaching at Fuller Seminary, Daniel Kirk, in New Testament, and he got up, he went first. I always like when the other person goes first because I've got basically 80 hours worth of material and I'm not getting that much time, so let me find out what arguments you're gonna use and then I'll tailor my response accordingly. And he started by saying that Dr. Gagnon is going to tell you that Jesus would have rejected every form of same-sex sexual behavior, irrespective of degree of commitment and love. And he said, I agree with that. I'm stunned. I said, well, I've already won the debate and I haven't even stepped up yet. This is great, but I'm really bummed out that I can't present my material. But then he added the fateful words, but, but, Jesus had insufficient knowledge to make that determination. There you go. And I thought, if that's the hill you want to die on, so be it. So I spent most of the time, of my time, underscoring the point of Jesus' view, and not that it was an outlier view for Jesus, that Jesus thought it was a peripheral matter in his discussion, but it was a central matter in human sexual ethics. And so central that he's the only one to come up with it in the ancient world. So for him, he didn't just naively imbibe at the cultural well. He had to think long and hard about what he was doing because he was canceling out, correcting Mosaic law. So he was quite serious about what he was doing. Now, the scholar I was alluding to earlier, James Brownson, I was going to get back to that, but then I forgot. This is what happens when you're 61 years old. You get down a trail of thought, and oh, that's a good thought, and then, whoop, oh, where was I? Okay, so back to James Brownson. He looks at Jesus' Jesus's remarks there. He admits that Jesus is rejecting polygamy, as I had argued before he had. But he attributes it only to one thing. He says, well, Jesus talks about the two becoming one flesh. So that's a kinship formula. So the basis for Jesus' argument is kinship, not complementarity of the sexes. I thought, really, that's a bizarre argument. Because while kinship will give you the permanent dimension of marriage, it won't restrict the number of persons to two. Because I have lots of kin. I have lots of relatives. I grew up in a Catholic household. Trust me, we have lots of relatives all over the place, okay? So if Jesus' only moral logic there is resting on a notion of kinship and not on the sexual binary that limits the relationship to two parties, then he's got no basis for limiting the number of partners in a sexual union to two. I mean, it's an obvious response, but it never even occurs to him because ideologically, He's so driven to a particular conclusion that it clouds, even though he's a good scholar, it clouds his interpretation of the biblical text. But it's patently obvious that it's only the duality of the sexes that gives you the duality of number. And it's not accidental that he cited no more than male and female he made them. I mean, there's not even a kinship formula there. That's in the Genesis 2.24 text. It's not in the Genesis 1.27 text. The only thing you can get from Genesis 1.27 is God intentionally made us male and female. That's it. So it's quite clear that Jesus is saying that the sexual binary is the foundation for the limitation of two persons to a sexual union. What about incest? Incest, I would argue, is also related to the prohibition of same-sex intercourse because What's wrong with incest? Someday at a cocktail party, just throw out the question, why not have sex with your mother? Talk among yourselves. 
It's hard to answer, isn't it, initially? Because, again, it is such an irreducible minimum of sexual ethics. My usual answer is, because she's your mother! And I have to, if I have to explain it beyond that, we already have a problem. Right? By the way, that reminds me of another argument. Remind me to get back to this part, and I just want to dovetail over here for a second. Wait a minute. Hold on one second. She's your mother. Okay. That's where I last left off. Okay. You'll often hear the argument that infrequency of mention is an indication that the offense is not particularly severe. Let me ask you this. I assume most of you go to church or possibly synagogue. Has the minister that you have ever devoted an entire sermon to why you shouldn't have sex with your mother or father? Have you ever heard that sermon being given? I never hear them talking about it. I'm the only one that ever talks about it. <laughs> hey, I deal with exciting stuff in my field, let me tell you that. Now, have you ever concluded from the fact that your pastor doesn't talk about that, that he has some secret acceptance for incest? No. What do you conclude from that? That it would be scandalous even to mention. That it's so beyond the pale of what any genuine believer could possibly conceive of as normative, that to mention it at all is already a loss for the church. And that's the nature of the issue of homosexual practice. Doesn't need to be a lot of mentions in scripture. It's such a severe offense, we don't even want to talk about it beyond this. We do have the Levitical prohibitions in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. We have a triad of stories in scripture about extreme sexual depravity in which same-sex intercourse figures as an, an integral element, including the story of Sodom, including the story of the Levite at Gibeah, which is a parallel of the story at Sodom, and I would argue also the story of Ham and Noah, which is not simply a story about voyeurism in Genesis 9, but is a story about Ham actually raping his father. And I'm not the only one to think that. The greatest scholars, Old Testament scholars of the 19th and 20th century, Hermann Gunkel and Gerhard von Rad, also thought that, as did a number of early rabbis talking about that text in the second, third century AD. Now, you could say, well, that has nothing to do with consensual sexual intercourse between persons of the same sex. I will agree that it's rape, but let me tell you this story. If I tell you a story about a, about a man who rapes his mother, would you conclude from that that the only thing I'm indicting is coercive forms of incest? No, you would conclude that this is a really bad, multiple offense, kitchen sink story that includes not just the offense of rape, but the offense of incest. And that's how everyone would understand it in, early, in ancient Israel and early Judaism. And it's the same thing with the issue of homosexual practice. Yes, rape is involved in the story, but because it's rape, the fault applies only to those attempting the rape, not to those being raped. But had the angelic visitors at Sodom or the Levite uh, who went to the Israelite town of Gibeah consented to that, then the fault would have shifted to them as well. So granted, not a lot of text directly speaking to it, but the ones that do speak to it, and the texts in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, specifically tag the offense with toavah, abomination, something abhorrent or detestable to God. Now all the sexual offenses in Leviticus 18 
are ultimately called toavot, abominations, in the conclusion at the very end of Leviticus 18. But the only one tagged prior to that point with that word is the man-male intercourse text. And later on, when Leviticus 20 reorders the sexual offenses in Leviticus 18, according to severity, man-male intercourse is put in the top tier list. There's no question they regarded it as an extraordinarily severe offense. But it's not even just limited to those texts. Every piece of narrative, every piece of legal material, every proverb, every poetry, every metaphor, every text in scripture that has anything to do with sexual ethics always presupposes a male-female requirement, no exceptions anywhere. In other words, that's the entire fabric of scripture's discussion of sexual ethics. That's the foundational premise for every discussion of sexual ethics that a male and a female must be involved, even to the point that when a metaphor is made of that about God's relationship with Israel, and frequently it's made because covenant, you ever want to know what covenant is in a word? Covenant is kinship. Covenant is the extension of kinship across bloodlines. The classic example of covenant is, among human beings, is marriage where two people who are not close kin related become kin by the virtue of covenant, with all the mutual obligations and privileges entailed thereto, even to a point where a man has to abandon his father and mother, leave them behind, and make the primary family his wife. And that's in a culture where extended family is extremely important, and honoring your parents is extremely important in the Decalogue. But at the point of marriage, even though this person you're married to isn't in reality blood kin, by virtue of marriage, she becomes your primary kin with whom you become one flesh. Let me get back to she's your mother. What was I trying to say there? Uh, loopholes, anyway, loopholes. This is regarded as a severe offense. So again, to make the point, it's not just a few texts, it's all over the place, and it's the foundation of everything. This is Illinois Family Spotlight. We'll continue with Dr. Robert Gagnon's remarks at the Illinois Family Institute Worldview Conference after this. We need to resist the inevitability thesis. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. Nearly everything in our culture proclaims it's futile to expect anyone to resist their same-sex attractions or gender identity issues, and that all attempts to help someone overcome these inclinations are just as futile and maybe illegal. After all, legislatures and city councils have passed and courts have upheld bans on so-called sexual orientation change efforts. In response, too many pastors, Christian school teachers, counseling degree programs at Christian colleges and seminaries, and even parents refuse to even address same-sex attraction or gender identity issues. But a federal court ruling last week challenges this so-called inevitability thesis. The 11th Circuit ruled that laws banning orientation change efforts violate free speech and the Constitution. The issue is likely headed to the Supreme Court. Of course, it's hard to predict what it will decide, so the best course of action for pastors, counselors, parents, and all Christians is to not live by lies, to never allow ourselves to say or go along with what's not true. I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. During this segment, Dr. Robert Gagnon points out 
that all sin is not equal, and he contends for Christians, hate would be to affirm homosexual practice. So I want to circle back a little bit now and talk about other texts under this rubric, namely the argument that all sins are equal, which is a quite common argument for people to use. Actually, I was almost on a TV show. There was some TV show that was being put on in Los Angeles about law ca- lawsuit cases that were going to be uh, performed in this uh, auditorium or something, and uh, the one that I, they invited me to be at uh, was going to be on a man who owned a pizza shop Uh, did not want to uh, give the pizza to a gay wedding because he didn't want to do anything to endorse what he regarded as immoral. And at one point, the lawyer who was on the other side was interrogating me. And he was absolutely, by the way, this never made it on TV. It's such a shame. I I must have killed the series right there, but never made it. Should have been in the summer, but they they stopped with show two. I was going to be show three. So there you have it. All the evidence is in. Anyway, he was really upset that I made the analogy with incest. Oh, and I didn't get back to that. That's what I wanted to say. It all circles back eventually. You know, how is incest like uh, same-sex intercourse? It's like it in this way. What's wrong with incest? Leviticus 18.6. You shall not have sex with the flesh of your own flesh. That's what the text literally says. That is, you shall not have sex with somebody who is too much close kin to you. Somebody who on the level of kinship is too much you. Not enough other. Now, we would talk about it today as not enough differentiation in the gene pool, right? And then refer to King George III during the Revolutionary War and a few other nutcases, okay? But I actually said that once in class, and it turned out to be in the class a person who had served the royal household, and he was very upset with that, and I had to apologize. So dismiss that. Wipe that out completely, okay? So incest involves a problem of too much sameness on the level of kinship. Where is sameness more keenly felt? more so than incest, on the level of sex or gender. Why? Because sex or gender is a more constituent component of sexual behavior, obviously, than is sex, because the nature of sexual behavior involves two people whose bodies are organized in such a way uh, that even if the equipment fails, at least the body is organized in such a way for procreation, for creating life from these two. So sameness is, if you have a problem with too much sameness and incest, and that gives you a sort of ick factor involved, as rightly you should have, there should be a natural revulsion to the thought of incest. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. If you don't experience a natural revulsion to it, that's a bad thing, not a good thing. If you feel too much sameness is involved in the incestuous bond, how much more in the same-sex sexual bond, the homosexual relationship? much more. At least in incest, yes, there's greater procreative abnormalities. That's true, but they can't at least procreate. That shows that there's a degree of otherness there in the relationship that doesn't exist in a homosexual union where procreation is not even possible. And I'm not giving an exception, by the way, in case you are wondering for a transgender man or a transgender woman, right? My, My feeling on that matter is if a transgender man is giving birth, he just demonstrated he's not a man. It's pretty simple, pretty basic. This is 101 human sexuality science, okay? Who's involved in fake science in this culture, I ask you. So, back to the, I want to go back to the question about are all things equal. I've tried to make the case for you that homosexual practice would be regarded in Scripture as worse than polyamory and worse than incest of an adult consensual nature. 
So that's part of the argument I want to make that not all sins are equal. All sins are equal in one respect. Namely, if you think that the way that you can get into the kingdom of God is by meriting entrance through your good behavior, then you will be excluded on any sin of any nature. So in that sense, all sin is equal. But sin is not equal in all respects, however. And we all know that to be true, that sin is not equal, right? Again, what's a good healthcare plan? A good healthcare plan would cover all injuries equally. But that doesn't mean that all injuries are equal. Some injuries are catastrophic, some are not, okay? And God's forgiveness can cover all sins equally. But that doesn't mean all sins are equal, right? So let's take the sinful woman who's washing Jesus' feet and with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. A very touching story about a sinful woman's embrace of forgiveness, owning it in a deep, all of us should feel that, with respect to our own lives, right? If Jesus were to show up here, our tears should all be washing his feet. I don't know if I can get my hair down sufficiently, but... I'll bring the towels in at the very least, okay? Because, and what Jesus says to his Pharisaic host at that point is the one who has forgiven more loves more. Now, how can she be forgiven more if all sin is equal? You see, what we try to do is make an offense less serious in order to love somebody. That's not the direction that it works in Scripture. The more serious the offense, the greater the outreach of love because that's the person in greater need. You're on the good ship Titanic and you've hit the, light, uh, the iceberg, forget about the people who are already in the lifeboats. They'll be okay. It's the people who are still on the boat that you have to get off. And that's what Jesus did. That's why he reached out aggressively in love to exploitative tax collectors and to egregious sexual sinners because they were at the highest risk for not inheriting the kingdom of God that he was proclaiming. And yet somehow in the church, we have distorted that into thinking that those persons to whom he reached out to had lesser offenses because somehow that makes us feel better. Now the Pharisees, they looked at Jesus' outreach to those who had sinned egregiously and concluded that he must be moderating God's ethical demand in order to fraternize with them, eat with them, share the gospel with them. But we know that Jesus' stands on material exploitation was well within the trajectory of the Old Testament prophets, and even then some. And we know, we've already discussed in Jesus' sex text, we've already discussed the fact that Jesus was the most rigorous sexual ethicist in the entire known ancient world, but yet he reached out in love to sexual sinners. The Pharisees could not get their theological imaginations around the fact that you can both intensify God's moral demand and reach out in love to the violators of that demand. The new Pharisees today, however, are on the left, primarily. They believe that if you do, consistent with Jesus' teaching, intensify God's moral demand, that you necessarily do not love the persons who violate those demands. It's the same inconsistency as the Pharisees, only it's simply from the other direction. They don't see how moral demand and love can be coordinated. But that's the whole ministry of Jesus. Are all sins equal? Look at the different penalties in the Old Testament text for different offenses, including sexual offenses. Think about Moses saying to the Israelites in the golden calf episode, 
you have sinned a great sin. How can you sin a great sin if all sin is equal? Early Israel talked about offenses done with a high hand, with arrogance and intentionality as being more severe. In Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel talks about, wait, you like this vision? You'll see still greater abominations to come. Doesn't seem like everything is equal. Jesus talked about weightier matters of the law. He talked about a first and second greatest commandment, indicating that not everything is equal. He talked about whoever release, releases the demand for one of, one of the least of these commands, violating the will of God. But apparently there are commands that are least and commands that are greater. He talked about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, for which he said there can be no forgiveness. Whatever that is, it must be a very serious offense indeed. He tells Pilate in John 19 that the one who handed over me to you has committed, that is Judas, has committed the greater sin. Clearly, again, not all sins are equal. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 talks about different grades of action, building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, with shoddy building materials being one thing, but destroying the temple of God, the community of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, being quite another, from which you could get exclusion from the kingdom of God. When Paul deals with a multiple of offenses at Corinth, for which, incidentally, I personally am grateful to the Corinthians, without which we could not have the great letter of 1 Corinthians. And without that text that pronounces a judgment against incest in 1 Corinthians 5, we might be arguing today, hey, there's no New Testament text against incest. Therefore, let's approve of it, right? But thankfully, there was an incestuous man in Corinth. And there are lots of sins that were being, by the way, that's a carefully parametered argument that I'm making there. Thankfully, there was an incestuous man in Corinth. You get what I'm saying, right? Okay, I'm, I'm thankful for the text that jumped off of that rather than for his actions. Corinthians are doing a lot of things wrong, but there's only one point that Paul says, put that person on remedial discipline. For the sake of the offender, for the sake of the purity of the commun community, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Not that a lot of people are going to then go out and commit incest, but rather because if you can give a pass on something as irreducibly minimum as incest, so essential for sexual ethics, then you can pretty much give a pass on anything. And he said that person, for his sake, the sake of the community, and for the, and for the sake of the God who redeemed you, must be temporarily put out until he gets a wake-up call of repentance and comes back in. And then he can be restored, and then he must be restored immediately, lest Satan takes advantage of that situation. Clearly, he regarded incest as a major offense, such that in a letter that's mostly about unity, he says, put this one out. Because the church is not merely a sociological community agreeing to disagree about whatever we want to do, but it's a community shaped by the spirit of Jesus Christ. It's his body, and it's under his lordship, and when we violate that lordship in a so-called attempt to be unified, that's not unity worth a warm bucket of spit. It's not to be valued. The church has to unite only under the lordship of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And when Paul talks about the issue of homosexual practice in Romans 1, he does it in the context of attempting to make an argument not merely that all are under sin. That's easy. I mean, I get a kick out of it. Now, I saw a heard a scholar recently made the argument, people don't understand sin anymore. Really? I said, get married. 
you'll understand what sin is. Now, I thought I was an extraordinarily holy person until I got married. And you know why? Because I always did whatever I thought was right. What I wanted to do, I did, and I never had any conflict with myself. How about that? I must be a good person. Either that or I'm not suffering under schizophrenia, one or the other, possibly both. But when I got married and had to live in close quarters, and now we will be celebrating our 36th year, Marriage is, I'm here to tell you, marriage is hard. And the disciples understood that when after Jesus talked about marriage being between one man and one woman in a lifelong indissoluble union, the disciples concluded that it's expedient to what? Not be married. Because they understood the severity of the demand. If you were with a spouse that really was not a good spouse in your, in your viewpoint, and it proved, demonstrated that on a daily basis, you're stuck with that spouse for life. That might be the occasion which for stuck with rather than stuck to. Um, but again, we can quibble over prepositions. So they understood that Jesus was making a very severe demand. Going back to Paul, Paul's talking about all are under sin, not just that all are under sin, again, that's easy, but rather that all people deliberately suppress the truth about God and about God's values accessible to them in the material structures of creation. So that you don't even, I mean, it's great to have the Bible, believe me, I'm not dissing the Bible in any way. That's our only source of direct revelation. But we have enough indirect revelation from the material structures around us to extrapolate certain conclusions about who God is and what he wants for us. And he cites the example of God's vastness. They can't be contained in a statue created in an image of a human or worse, animals. That this is absurd when you think about the vastness and order of the cosmos and the creator that must be behind it. But then when it comes time to talking about the next element, because really this is an extended vice or offender list that he everywhere has in his letters, which are always in one, two, idolatry and sexual immorality in either order. Those are always the top two issues that Paul deals with with his converts. To me, that doesn't suggest that sexual purity is a matter of little consequence for Paul. On the contrary, and when he's dealing with the issue of sexual immorality, what offense does he highlight among sexually immoral offenses that most clearly indicates a deliberate suppression of the truth about God accessible in the material structures of creation? Homosexual practice, because that's obvious. That's obvious on the level of anatomy. It's obvious on the level of physiology that they match for procreation. It's even obvious on the level of psychology, which is why we have people going around saying men are from Mars and women are from Venus, recognizing that there are critical differences between male and female, right? So Paul's making the point, this is among sexual offenses, the clearest suppression of the truth about God accessible to us. You really have to have lots of years of indoctrination and education to forget that. So we don't get any sense from that picture that Paul thinks that homosexual practice isn't particularly severe. On the contrary, we get the opposite impression. And he actually, in that context, although he doesn't specifically cite Genesis 1.27, it's everywhere in the background. Because when you read Romans 1.26 and Romans 1.27, you see a coordination of eight different terms drawn from Genesis 126 and 127 that Paul repeats in Romans 124 to 127, that God creates the human in his image and likeness, human image likeness, and gives the human being dominion 
over birds, cattle, and reptiles, and creates them male and female. And those eight terms appear in that short compass of Romans 124 to 127. To say that not only is there a clear nature argument if you don't have scripture, but also, do you see what I'm doing here? I'm alluding back to Genesis 126 to 127, and for those of you who have access to direct revelation, you have a second reason to abide by what I'm saying, that God intentionally created us as a binary sexual complementary pair, and anyone who attempts to override that violates the clear design of God and creation stamped in Genesis 1. And as long as we're in Genesis, Paul actually, when he cites also the issue of homosexual practice, in the viceless in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the asinokoitai, men who lie with a male, within a few verses of that, he's citing Genesis 2, 24. So the very same two texts of Genesis that Jesus said is normative and prescriptive, prescriptive with proscriptive implications for all human sexual ethics, according to Jesus, these are the key sex texts, those are the texts in the background for Paul's indictment of homosexual practice in Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. You see how he's a good disciple of Jesus. He's doing exactly what Jesus tells him to and comparing those texts against the phenomenon of same-sex intercourse in his cultural environment. Well, there's many other things that I could say here, but we have run out of time. So, let me summarize by saying, number one, this is no small matter. This is the matter over which the church's confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the validity of it will be determined. It could have been over other issues that the evil one might make the attack, but it has turned out to be this one. And if you're waiting for some other issue to be faithful because this one is too hard, this is it. This is the one to be faithful over. This is the one to say, no, I declare Jesus to be Lord, and he knows more. He's not, it's not that he has insufficient knowledge to make that determination, but he's the one that knows the will of God. And we better be obeying him on that. And we better show that we've counted the cost and we're willing to pay it. Because if you don't do that, not only will you endanger people involved in same-sex relationships, but the whole edifice of sexual ethics will fall. Because if the foundation goes, the superstructure built on the foundation can hardly last for long. So now is the time to stand and to be counted. Not because you hate. For me, knowing what I know about Jesus' teaching in Scripture generally, hate would be affirming homosexual unions and transgenderism. Because I would be consigning people to destruction. Do we think that this is a democracy? In the kingdom of God, I've actually encountered faculty members applying for a position, not at my current institution, but I won't say where, who actually believe that hierarchy in relation to God is a dangerous concept, that we should be dialoguing with God. To which I say, have you ever read the book of Job? You see how that turns out in the end? Remember when God asked our advice when he was measuring the expanse of the cosmos? I don't recall that and he doesn't need our advice now. He's declaring to us what is true and right and good and holy in his sight. And therefore, advocating the opposite of that is the opposite of all those virtues. Not a good and certainly not a manifestation of love. It's a functional manifestation of hate and I refuse to participate in it, whatever the cost may be. 
Will you join us in that? Lord, we pray that you will help us in making this commitment be a reality in our life. And we pray that you will help us to do it in a manner that is loving and gracious, recognizing our own sin and not majoring in minors and knowing our need of your grace just as well. Give us the strength, the power, and the wisdom, Lord, to carry out this task because we know that it is all through you and to you we give the glory and exclaim, nobody is like you. In the name of your son, we give thanks. Amen. Dr. Robert Gagnon, during the recent Illinois Family Institute Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington, be sure to view his address on the IFI YouTube channel. Please be in prayer during the global pandemic, and remember to pray for and support the ongoing work of the Illinois Family Institute, IllinoisFamily.org. All donations are tax-deductible. Also, tell a friend about Illinois Family Spotlight. Stay safe, and until next time, God bless. Thank you for listening to Illinois Family Spotlight. For more information, please visit us at ifiaction.org and look for us on Facebook and Twitter. If you would like to email us questions or comments, please do so at feedback at ifiaction.org. Until next time, stay engaged and keep your eyes on the prize.